Welcome into Mock Trial Masterclass, your guide to controlling the courtroom. I'm Luke, and I want you to be a Mock Trial Master. And in this week's episode of the Mock Trial Masterclass podcast, we're going to talk about how you can do just that. The Mock Trial Masterclass podcast comes out whenever we need a little bit more time than in our traditional uh, weekly coaching videos to cover a topic, to dive a little deeper. And this week is one of those times, and I'm super excited because we've got some great guests joining us today. You know, a lot of you all out there are listening to this podcast or, or watching this on YouTube because you're participating in Mock Trial Maybe you've had some success before, maybe you haven't, but you're sitting there thinking, man, how do I get to the next level? How can I improve my abilities if you're a student, if you're a coach listening to this? How can I get my team to improve their abilities to take our game to the next level? And I think that answering those questions, the best way to do that is to talk to people who have done it and listen to what they have to say and what kind of wisdom they have to offer. And so today we're joined by two folks who just did that. We're joined by Marcus Miller and Grant Miner, the coach and a team member of the now, as of May 2023, reigning high school mock trial national champions. And they're going to help us dive into all of those topics today to help you all listening get better at your craft and take the next step. How are you guys doing? Welcome in. Well, thank you so much for having us. Um, I am so excited. Uh, Grant here is really excited, I'm sure, to get into this. And we just, you know, I love mock trial. I'm a mock trial junkie. So it's always exciting to talk about mock trial with people. Yeah, the off season has been a bit slow for me. So I'm always willing to talk about mock trial a bit more. It is always a bit slow. And, and it's funny because I feel like for me as a coach, when I get to the end of a season, like I'm so in it, but but however the season ends, whether you like lose in the state tournament or you lose at nationals or whatever, you win, you're kind of ready to take that breath, and it's you know it's been nonstop forever. But then like a month or two in, you've gotten the breath, you've gotten the rest, and you're like, man, I'm ready to get going again. Absolutely, I I took like you said, I took um, you know a week or so off. I actually signed up for a marathon. I'm a runner. Yeah, uh, like the day after nationals, but then. You know, like you said, week, two weeks, about a month in, I was like, oh, I'm 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 experiencing that itch, so to speak. So so Marcus, you are uh, one of the coaches for yes. the reigning national champions. Congratulations on your title. Grant, Thank tell you. us about your role, because you are a team member. Uh, yeah, uh, during my years under Marcus, I've done a bit about everything. I've done attorney roles, witness roles. I've changed roles midway through the season, but. During the national run, I was a witness police officer type, which Marcus has sort of typecast me in as the Southern police officer, so I've done that a lot, but mainly just doing a witness role, being a character for the judges to enjoy and really see the case through. So I I'm really curious as we hop into this, Let's start right where I was talking about earlier. The people who are listening to this who are asking themselves, how can I take my game to the next level if they're a competitor? How can I take my students' game to the next level as a coach? You guys just did it. You succeeded at the highest level possible. If you were to take a 1,000-foot view over this season, we're going to get into more of the nitty-gritty into the details in just a little bit. But what's the secret? Like, what, What's the secret sauce? What's the key to doing this as a high level? We'll start with you, Marcus, as a coach, and then Grant as a team member. There are a lot of things that I would say, and like you said, we'll get into the nitty-gritties, but high level sort of thematically, I would say, is at least one thing that I always emphasize with my students is, yes, we're doing mock trial, but it's more than that. It's about doing something great and having pride in what you're doing. Um, and yes, we happen to be doing mock trial, but it's about being excellent at what we're doing in this moment. So hmm. what that means practically is, for example, um, not settling for just good. You know, I give feedback up until the competition day, even the day of the competition, I yeah. said, not good enough, not good enough. That's gotta be better. And, you know, of course I'll say, 
good things that they do, but I am never satisfied almost. Mm -hmm. And my grant can attest to that. I am always nitpicking, nitpicking. And I think that that makes them better. But as I say, you know, it's not just about Monk Child. It's about the broader life lesson of um, seeking greatness in everything you do. Marcus, I love that you bring that up because one of the things I talk about in my book as to individual keys to success in mock trial is you have to have a play to win mentality because there are a lot of programs out there that on one hand, maybe they're just doing it for a learning experience, just kind of for the fun of it. And and then there are some students out there that may just be doing it to boost their resume, to get some public speaking practice. And I have no problem with either of those approaches. I'm not mad at anybody for doing that. But folks, if if, if you want to win, if you want to succeed at this and and you get to the end of a tournament, and you're asking yourself, man, why didn't we place the way we wanted to? Why didn't you know any of our individuals get awards? It often comes down to that. Did we have a play-to-win mentality? Like you were talking about, Marcus, was there anything less than our best that we settled for? And if there was, you're probably not going to get where you want to go. Yeah, that's right. And I, <laughs> you know, I had a student, I won't name his name, but I had a student who in the final round of nationals, after we just won, yeah, I thought he could have done better <laughs> on his cross. And yeah. I, you know, 30 minutes after we won, I sat down with him. I said, you know, insert name, you missed this objection, or I think you could have impeached there. And he said, I don't want to talk about that, Marcus. I said, okay, fair enough. We just won. We'll talk <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> now, Grant, I'm curious for your perspective on that, because the balance that Marcus and I have to walk as coaches when we're talking to our students is... We have that mentality and our students have that mentality, but we have to be encouraging as well. We, we can't make the students think that you know, they're constantly coming up short of our expectations and, and we have to instill confidence in you guys as students. So I'm curious, what's your perspective on that? Because I imagine you have this mentality, this play to win and settling for nothing less. How does that work for you as you interact with your coach and, and just from a team member's perspective from you and your teammates throughout this season? Well, I would like to bring up a sort of relevant story. After we won the state championship and preparing for nationals, yeah. Marcus sat us all down and said, okay, so we can do two things here. We can either just coast through this, have a nice, fun trip, and enjoy ourselves, or we can go for the win, practice every day, and have a chance to win this thing. And every single person on our team was like, let's do this, let's win this thing. So as a team, it still goes both ways, both the coaches and the kids. That's that's what's important, when both students and coaches want to win. And as for me, yeah, Marcus, he can be a bit critical at times, and he knows it, but we all love it. We all want him to. Sometimes he says, oh, I'm sorry if I'm being too critical. And we go, no, be more critical because we want that criticism because we want to better ourselves. That's great because like, there's nothing we as coaches can do to get you all to have that mentality, right? We can lead and, and put good leadership principles into place. But there's this myth out there about motivation, whether you're talking about a mock trial team or an office setting or anything like that, that there is something a leader can do to motivate the team that, you know, if you're thinking about it in an office setting, like the boss, like throwing a pizza party, if you meet your goals for the quarter, something like that, right? All that's kind of nonsense because it really just comes down to the individual saying, no, I'm going to come into the office with excellence every day. And if we translate that to mock trial, I'm going to come to practice with excellence every day. I'm going to do everything I can within me to give my best. And I'm going to trust that my teammates are going to do the same. And I I love that you tell that story, Grant, because clearly you and your teammates from day one said, this is going to be our mentality. This is how we're going to attack this. And it paid off, clearly. Yeah, and I I um, echo what Grant said. I will also say that we have a lot of other assistant coaches that help kind of smooth the edges, so to speak. <laughs> um, so it'll be, you know, one major person is my then fiance, but now husband, Joe. He was kind of like the really nice one. And then I was, uh, okay, yes, you did good, but let's get back to what you could have done better. Mm-hmm. Now, I- I'm curious about this too, Marcus, because what I found, because I tend to be, a a highly decisive communicator when I talk to anyone, but especially with my mock trial team where 
I, I don't like to add a whole lot of fluff. The compliment sandwich, you know, if, if something was wrong, I'm going to say, hey, ask this question differently and we're going to move on. And what's been helpful for me as a coach to avoid sort of sending the wrong message to my team members is having a relationship with them so that they know when I give them that, they know where it's coming from. So, you know, for example, I'm getting to practice early and joking around with them and have little inside jokes with each and every one of them. And that way, when I say, hey, make sure you're, you're only asking leading questions during your cross because uh, I caught you, you asked this uh, open-ended question, they know where that's coming from. Their response to that isn't, oh, I'm being attacked. I'm not good enough, blah, blah, blah. It's, oh, yeah, my friend Luke really wants me to succeed, and he's giving me this to help that. Have you seen that play out for you as well? I have, and I'll also let Grant sort of jump in too, but I do a lot of things, or at least I try to. Um, establish, like you said, that relationship with my students. I try to go to their extracurriculars outside of mock trial, like their choir concerts, their band concerts, mm -hmm. their track meets or whatever um, when I'm in town. Because I actually coach remotely, but that's beside the point. Um, I also, you know, I'm always available to meet over Zoom if they want to like work individually. And during those meetings, of course, we're working on a mock trial, but we're also having fun. Yeah. We're joking around where, like you said, the inside jokes. And then also with the scrimmages, we like to joke around a lot of times too. So um, I 100% agree that it, it starts with relationships, both coaches to students, but within the students themselves, it's, I, I do what they like to call for, forced rapport, where I force them to just hang out, not do anything related to mock trial and just hang out as a group. Um, and so anyways, I'll let Grant jump in about that. Grant, you were nodding and smiling that whole time. Yeah, he brought up a lot of memories. I don't know if I wanted to remember them, but <laughs> Marcus takes the initiative so many times on just communication, not just related to mock trial, but I'd say about every week he calls at least once just, just to chat and talk about what's going on in life. And he does that with everyone. Like, that's not specifically with me. That's everybody. He yeah. wants to talk to people. And that makes us think, like, one, he's a bit clingy, but <laughs> two, he really does care about us. This isn't just a coaching gig for him. He really cares about us individually and wants to see us succeed. You know what I love about this conversation is, and I try to explain this to people and when they say, well, how do we succeed in mock trial? How, how do we sort of structure our program to be successful? What I like to say is, Okay, if you're at a high school or a college with a great basketball team or a great football team, you've got to do the same stuff they're doing. Like it's obviously a much different activity. There's there's no, you know, physical exertion involved. You're not lifting weights to get better. But as a coach, you need to be doing the things that the football coach is doing. You know, sh showing up to practice, setting a standard of excellence in practice. Like we were talking about developing a, a relationship with your team members, making the difficult decisions, even when they're not popular and being willing to do that. And as a student, you got to do the same thing the basketball players are doing. You got to practice every day. You, you're, you know, whereas the, the basketball players might be going to the free throw line after hours to shoot and get better. You know, you've got to be spending time outside of practice as a mock trial student getting better. And I mean, as evidenced by our conversation right now, We've got three national championship rings between the three of us. We don't say that to brag. We say that to, this is the approach we take, and 100% of the time, it works. Yeah, and I'll also say, um, on top of that, you know, the one thing that I think is a sign of a healthy program, not just with ours, but I think a lot of programs, mock trial programs I've noticed, uh, is when their alumni come back to help. Um mm -hmm. And I think that's evidence that, you know, the alumni had such a good time. They um, they appreciate the coach, they appreciate the students, and they come back and help. Yeah. You know, we have anywhere from any, sometimes we have five, anywhere from five to 10 alumni come back every season to come help coach. And I really think it helps the students, it helps me, and we all just kind of have a shared experience and shared um, goal of uh doing well. So that's mm -hmm. really fun as well.
Grant, I'm curious for you, because one thing that came up as Marcus was talking a minute ago was being able to have fun in the midst of that hard work. That, that's something else I talk about in the last chapter of my book, which is if you're not having fun, there's no purpose in doing this. Like you want to win. Sure. And that's the goal. But if you're miserable, you're not only is it not worth doing, but you're not going to win in the end. So I'm curious from your perspective, Grant, how did you and how did your teammates find that balance between goofing around, making sure you weren't taking yourself too seriously, but also that you were at the same time taking your work seriously? Well, a lot of ways we did that was sometimes we'd go to one specific person's house and just do an entire practice there because it's all remote. So we we changed up the locations. We changed up what we did. We just made it interesting so that we didn't get bored of the practicing. And as for having fun with it, I mean, we're all just really good friends in real life. And that might be a rare thing to see, but all of us who are just teammates, we all care, respect, and really actually like each other. Yeah. And no matter what goes through it, we all have each other's backs, which is an incredible thing to have and make sure it stays fun. We have a lot of just non-mock trial related events. We do parties. We just have a lot of fun to make sure that we are keeping a good relationship with each other, which better helps with mock trial. And one more question before we move on, because I want to talk next about your preparation before the tournament and some of the best practices that you all uh, put into to, to practice uh, is the sort of difference between college and high school mock trial, because uh, I'm a, I'm a high school coach. You're a high school coach, Marcus uh, Grant, you were a high school competitor, but a, a criticism I've gotten before is like, well, we can't listen to what Luke says because he's a high school coach and we're in college. And that ignores a couple of things. Like number one, I did college mock trial. Like I won in college mock trial. Again, this isn't to toot my own horn. This is just to say like, you know, we know what we're talking about. And Grant or Marcus, you've done college mock trial before. You've been in that world. So can you just settle this once and for all? The worlds are different, but these things that we're talking about here, they don't stop once you graduate high school. I absolutely agree. And I would say that, um, you know, I think the best, I would pit the best high school teams against most college. Absolutely. Teams. Absolutely. Um, and I can't tell you the number of times where I've had, um, students from uh, colleges, I've invited them to come watch our teams at practice or scrimmages. Mm -hmm. And they've repeatedly said things like your team could do very well at AMTA tournaments or oh, things yeah. like that. And so, you know, I, and especially the higher level you get at the high school, the more flexible, because I think that really distinguishes college from high school is there's just a little more uncertainty in what the trials will look like because mm -hmm. there's more ambiguity of what witnesses will be yeah. called and things like that. But um, you know, my team, I always teach our students to be flexible, to be listening to what the other side says, responding on the fly to what's happening. And that is certainly translatable to the college level. And certainly all the cross-exam techniques that I teach the students, as well as the knowledge of the rules of evidence. Of course, there's a little more complications with college, but certainly mm -hmm. the baseline is there. So let's move into our next section, because I want to talk about, like I said a, sec a second ago, how to prepare for a tournament. It's a question a lot of people have. A lot of coaches want to know what's the best way to get the most out of our practice time. What's the best way for us to make sure that on game day, we're ready to go. That's what we're going to talk about next. First, though, I want to remind you all that my book, Mock Trial Masterclass, is available for purchase on Amazon. And guys, this is a book that is so easy to understand and so simple that college professors don't get it. College professors pick up this book and say, well, why isn't it more complicated? Why didn't you use more big words? And the answer to that is simple. I wanted this book to help you guys. I wanted this book to help people get better at mock trial. I wanted it to be able to be understood. And what's funny is I get comments from college professors who say, well, this book is too simple. And then on the other hand, I get comments from students who read this book and say, this was the first mock trial book I was actually able to understand. So if you're looking for a mock trial guide that is a championship plan that anyone can understand, something that's going to be fun to read if you're enjoying this podcast, if you're enjoying these coaching videos, it's the same tone of voice. It's the same humor. All that's in there. You can go pick up a copy on Amazon by clicking the link in the description on YouTube or in the show notes on podcast platforms. Let's talk about practice, guys. 
again, thousand foot view. We can break down the details in a minute. What does it take to get the most out of practice? We'll start with you, Grant. First of all, there's a lot of practice. I'd say about 10 hours a week I used to spend on mock trial with like three, four practices and the other time just spending it outside of practice. But the main thing that works with a practice is honing in on all of the different skills you need for mock trial. Because mm-hmm. we had a lot of uh, preseason practices just working on the basics, the rules of evidence, yeah. how, to, how to present yourself in a courtroom. Then when the case comes out, it's study, 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 everything in it. Both witnesses and attorneys know the entire case materials back to front. Yeah. During practices, the most important thing is just being able to split up the workload, being able to work on each of the parts, being able to focus on different things so that way you don't have a weakness. Yeah, I love that because a challenge for for our coaches is always we want to start getting into the scripting, not that everything's necessarily going to be memorized, but we get that case packet, we get the witnesses, and we say, okay, we want to start figuring out what to ask on cross and what are we going to ask on direct and what's our theme and what's our opening statement going to be. And then we forget that like we forgot to tell the students what what the whole purpose of an opening statement is. And and we forgot to tell the students that you know you shouldn't use fillers at the end of your cross-examination questions. And so I love what you said, Grant, because it's a great reminder for all of us that it starts with the fundamentals. It starts with knowing what it is you're doing before you get to the point of figuring out what exactly are, are the particulars of that and what specifically you're going to say. Yeah, I think it's just really important to know the basic foundation of what you're doing because I coached an eighth grade team of mock trial and I did sort of what you said. I focused on, okay, this is what we're going to say. This is what we're going to do. And focus less on okay this is what mock trial is yeah all these people are starting mock trial for the first time and i'm here doing high school mock trial sort of saying like okay if you do this and this and this and you sort of have to just let the students figure that out too which is why Mm -hmm. i appreciate marcus's coaching because mine did not work that well (laughs) marcus talk about your coaching as as compared to grant's Grant did a great job for his first year. I'll just let the record reflect that. Um, But I would say, you know, sort of picking up on the theme of not losing the big picture here, I think one thing that um, teams, especially at the beginning of the season, that I think really distinguishes the top teams from the good but not great teams Mm -hmm. is they oftentimes don't take the time to develop a coherent case theory um, and making sure that, like, for example, with our team, I don't assign parts until about a week until after we've all read the case, until we've all had a discussion together about, all right, what case theory do we want to do for the plaintiff? What do we want to do for the defense? What evidence do we need from each part, direct, yeah. cross, things like that? I don't even assign the parts at that point because I don't want the students to be tunnel visioned at that point. I want them seeing the case from a a, a wide perspective. Mm-hmm. And then once we as a team have... Um, sort of agreed on at least a preliminary framework. Of course, it can change as we get more into the details, but at least as a preliminary framework, then I assign the parts and then they have something to go off of when they work on the parts. Everything will hopefully be cohesive. Um, and because as you know, a lot of times there's a lot of different approaches of how you might want to present the plaintiff case or what argument is going to be best for defense. And if you try to do the spaghetti at the wall, that oftentimes doesn't work. You want to have a coherent theory, especially with time limits in mock trial. So I would say one of the first steps that coaches and teams can do is have that week, even two weeks, spend it on learning the case and doing the big picture, list out the elements and figure out what pieces of evidence go under each element and then get into the nitty gritties with the, with the parts. That's great. Grant, how, how did that help you as a competitor, that approach, uh, go through the season, starting with, okay, we have a theory, we know what the heart of our case is, we have a theme, and then going from there as opposed to starting with, okay, well, what, what are the three questions we want to ask the expert witness? Well, I remember the first day after learning the case, 
we got a we had a three hour meeting where all we did was decide what our case theory is going to be, what our theme is going to be. We spent like three, four hours just all in the same space, solely working on about three or four words per theme. And being able to work into that, having it's sort of like having the cliff notes to something you've already read and now reading it again, fully uh. knowing what the basic plot lines are going to be. It makes it so much easier to fill out the rest and be able to focus on one storyline and one point instead of figuring it out as you go. And another good thing about finding case theory is that everybody's on the same page. Like if one, if one direct says this, the other direct is going to build off of that. Our directs, our crosses, our opens, our closes, they're all building off the same thing because we all know the theory and all know what we're going to build around. I love that. You know, as we're talking about building a foundation for your team and making sure that uh, students have a mock trial foundation before we get into the foundation of the particular case, one of the really important things to do, and it's, it's come up in our conversation already, is a foundation in the rules of evidence. It's one of the most important things, but it's also one of the hardest things to coach and to get students to pick up. Uh, teaching people about the rules of evidence and objections was really one of the main reasons I wanted to start the whole mock trial masterclass thing because it's just such a hard thing to grasp. And I, I hope that having a resource like this can help people do that. But Marcus, as a coach, how do you go about making sure that your students don't just memorize the rules of evidence, but understand what they mean? Because that's a hard leap to make. You know, everyone can kind of stand up and recite the definition of a rule and say, well, relevant evidence is evidence that has any tendency to make a fact more or less likely. And hearsay is an out-of-court statement offered for the truth of the matter asserted. And then it kind of goes to the other person and comes back to them and they have no idea what to say next because those memorized words they just rattled off, they had no idea what they meant. So how do you go about with your students bridging that gap? Because it's so, so important to do. So this is something that I have worked on for years now and trying to figure out how to make the rules of evidence the most accessible to students. What I do is, and this is sort of the blueprint that I would recommend to coaches, I would say, is at the beginning of the season, before the case comes out, I actually teach the rules of evidence um, through the cold call method. I, I went to law school. I do it as, as if I'm a law professor. And we, we walk through, we start with relevance, then we go to hearsay, then we do character evidence, and then we kind of get into the more, I don't know, the lesser intellectually challenging ones like speculation, things like that. Mm -hmm. But what I'll do is I'll teach them the rules. We'll literally read together what the rule says. And then I will come up with a million different hypos. I will give them, I will either type them up and put them on a slideshow and we'll walk through the examples together. And then I'll call on them, cold call them and say, all right, Grant, you're the prosecutor. What's the argument that you make for why it's hearsay? Yeah. All right, you know, so-and-so Susan, tell me as defense, what's your best argument? And I, and I force them to articulate using the language of the rules and applying it to the facts. I force them to do that. And if I think they're wrong, then um, I'll say, all right, you know, so-and-so argues this. Next student, why do you think that's, do, do you agree or do you disagree with that analysis? And then we'll mm -hmm. walk through it together. And so that's initially what I do. Then once we get the case and once the lawyers have sort of gotten their parts written and everything, I will read the statement with every lawyer line, like word for word, line by line, I will read their entire statement together. We will stop after every sentence. Any objections here? Either should we make them or should we not? Should Or do we anticipate an objection? Mm -hmm. And then if so, we literally talk about exactly what are we going to say? What is their best argument going to make? What's an argument that they'll make that's probably a bad argument, but we need to know how to respond to? And we have quite literally documents, probably 15, 20 page documents long documents of responses that we plan to say. And if they say this, say this. If they say that, say that. And it's not to say that they have to memorize that. It's yeah. more of the process mm -hmm. of thinking through exactly. the objection battles 
Um, and then being prepared for any kind of odd curveball that might come up. Because as you know, there's always curveballs in mock trial. That's great. but And that's a foundational principle of, of training and, and educating in general is it's one thing to memorize something. It's another thing to understand something. And then it's the next step to be able to apply that thing and explain it yourself. Grant, I'm curious, you were a witness this year. You've been an attorney in the past. How has that approach helped you be able to grasp the rules of evidence? Well, first of all, every single student learns the rules of evidence. Witness, attorney, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I love that. We all learn the rules of evidence to make sure that we all know what's going on. And that is so important to just all be on the same, same wavelength. But going back to the question, knowing the rules of evidence and specifically applying the rules of evidence is such an important step in any mock trial season. Because when you know the rules of evidence, it's sort of like framework again. You know what you can base your entire case around. You know what you can say, what you don't say. And you know, again, you're confident in what you know. So if somebody throws you a curveball, you know what the rule actually means. And using hypos and application of those hypos is the most important step for any attorney and should be one of the most for any witness. Yeah, that's great. And and what the story I always love to tell is uh, I remember after one tournament round, uh, my dad came up to me. My dad was not a lawyer. He worked for a construction company. He came up to me and he said, Luke, uh, did you see how such and such attorney on the other team didn't know the rules? And I said, yes, my dad was absolutely correct. And I tell that story to illustrate that my dad, who for the most part had no idea what was going on in those rounds, he was just there to support me. He noticed when the person on the other team didn't know the rules and he was right. And I tell that story to illustrate the fact that if you just kind of halfway do it with the rules of evidence and you're not all in and you think you're just kind of kind of figure it out when the objections come up, it will show. It, it's going to show. The scores are going to notice and it's going to reflect in your scores. Uh, an earlier episode of the Mock Trial Masterclass podcast, Amanda Mundell, who wrote the great book Winning Objections, was a guest. You can go and listen to that episode for a deeper dive on objections and the rules of evidence. Here's something else I'm curious about, guys, as you prepared for your national championship run and, and as you practice throughout the season is deciding, and we've teased it a little bit, where your roles go, which students get which roles. That's obviously decision, Marcus, that comes down to you. And when it comes to nationals, you don't have a whole lot of time to make those decisions. So what are sort of your general practices of looking at a case and asking yourself, okay, which students fit the best? in in which roles because I'll, I'll say for me it has always been really easy for the attorneys because we for the most part before the case even comes out we'll have our three attorneys picked out but with witnesses is where it really gets difficult and challenging and asking yourself which personalities fit best which with uh with which parts yeah so for i'll just speak with nationals the you're right that the timeline was quick um i I had an idea of, I guess, normally what I do is I kind of fill out the witnesses first. Um, and I kind of think, what character do I view this witness as? And, you know, what's going to play well? What's going to have be fun? But and what who can can sort of pull it off, so to speak. And then once I've had those and then I'll kind of balance that with, all right, do we is this too lawyer heavy? Is this too witness heavy? Trying to trying to even the, the sides out as much as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other consideration I look at is who do I think is going to work best together? Of course, everyone, you know, works well together generally, but if, you know, naturally there's going to be people who yeah. get along a little better personality wise and things like that. Um, so I definitely factor that in. I factor in um, related to that, you know, if people have worked together in the past and they've done great, they have that chemistry, they've got that, rapport that's really important that's kind of the intangible i would say in mock trial is the sort of blind trust that you can put with each other both witness and lawyer um so that's another factor i consider i also consider what i look at is reading the statements who i think which witnesses i think 
and anticipate we'll have the most difficult objection battles and then maybe putting my lawyers who are the strongest in objection battles um, in those roles um, and things like that. Yeah, I there's I don't have one sort of mm-hmm. uh, cookie cutter um, approach. I really think of it as a holistic approach. And of course, I also ask the students what do they want. And obviously, they don't get every time what they want. But I definitely factor that in um, into my consideration. What about with new students when they come in? Because a lot of the things you just talked about are the sort of known commodities, right? You know that Grant is talented at this thing and that one of your other students is is more talented at that thing. How do you evaluate when someone comes in? What's your audition process? What do you like to do to figure out when you have new blood where they're (laughs) going to wind up or if they're going to wind up anywhere? Well, first of all, we apologize saying... Welcome to the ride. <laughs> um, but <laughs> um, but all jokes aside, one thing that I like to do with our team is before the case comes out in the preseason, I actually write my own cases for the kids. And then we do mini mock trials where literally the day of I give them the case, they have an hour to they have an hour to prepare it, and then they do the mock trial right there, right then and there. They're they're short, like one page per witness or one and a half pages mm-hmm. per witness. Um, but I use those to kind of see, all right, like, can this student kind of get up and do a cross on the spot? Can they do a close? What, what, what would it look like if they're placed in a witness spot, you know, and things like that? Yeah. So I use those as metrics, um, if I'm not familiar with them. And also just during the cold calls, as I mentioned earlier, I use that as a metric to kind of help me evaluate who might be best with objection battles and I'm I'm constantly talking to the students also just um making sure keeping temperature checks on how they're feeling about you know I'm I'm like I'm sure you're feeling overwhelmed but how overwhelmed are you feeling and things like that so mm-hmm. um and then of course you know during practices I have my assistants sort of monitoring I'm always asking my assistants you know how is the student doing give me an update on how they're progressing things like that so we try our best to to to, pr- to accurately predict how students will do. So w- we've hit sort of the keys to success, took that thousand foot view and asked, what does it take to be good at mock trial? We talked about that play to win mentality. Over the last few minutes, we've been covering preparation, what it looks like to practice well and get ready for a tournament. As we wrap up, I want to talk about the tournaments themselves because tournaments are difficult to get through. It's a slog. It's a marathon. And so I want to go through some of the best ways that you all like to get through a tournament, especially when the pressure is on like it is at nationals. So Grant, I'll ask this first question to you, and that's when the pressure's on, when your nerves are getting really high, as they're naturally going to do in those types of situations, what are some of your favorite ways as a competitor to calm yourself down, kind of bring that pressure level down? and make sure that no matter how anxious you might feel on the inside, just because it's a big deal and there's a big trophy on the line, you're able to perform the way that you know you're, you, that you can and that you're capable of. So one of the easiest things to fall back on when the pressure is rising or you're feeling stressed is just falling back on your knowledge of the case. Again, when you practice as much as our team does, you know what you're doing. And when you know what you're doing, the pressure of performing it is lesser because you know everything you're going to say. You know how you're going to say it. So worrying about saying it differently this one time, just it goes away when you realize how many times you've done it correctly. Mm -hmm. Because at this point, you've done it correctly hundreds, if not thousands of times, just practicing it. So falling back on the knowledge that you know what you're doing is one of the ways I comfort myself if ever I'm feeling stressed. I love that because, and this is something else I talk about in the book, is that stress level comes down with preparation. You know, you have to be confident to be successful at mock trial. And that confidence doesn't come from some kind of like, oh, yeah, I'm the stuff. I've got, you know, it comes from your preparation. It's the preparation that gives you the confidence. The hard work is what leads to the confidence, not some not, not some kind of attitude of arrogance or cockiness. Yeah, and another thing that really helps with dealing with the pressure, a lot of times 
being thrown off your game is extremely rattling and unsettling for mm-hmm. a lot of teams. But what our team stresses is adaptability. Yeah. Being able to adapt to any curveball that mock trial throws at you. So if something happens or a judge overturns a call or something doesn't go your way, it's important to just fall back on being able to adapt to your surroundings. And it's hard to coach adaptability, but being able to just throw yourself into any situation and being able to adapt to it, learning how to do that really helps you deal with the stress of something not going your way. How do you coach adaptability, Marcus? Well, we do a million scrimmages. Um, I try to set up as many scrimmages as possible with teams because every team will bring something new to the table, some new quirk, some new theory that we haven't seen, a new cross question that we haven't seen. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I tell my students, do your best. And then after um, trial, I always call it our postmortems. I um I go over and we go over part by part and I nitpick and nitpick and I say, all right, so they asked this. I didn't like that response. Let's figure out a different way to respond that way. And um so one that's one way I teach adaptability. The other way, as I've kind of mentioned before, is the cold calling. That's right there. You're just put on the spot, have to come up with a with a response. Um and you know, I think I also the other thing I try to teach them is using the open, this is a very specific example, but telling, teaching my students to listen to the other side's opening statement, to understand what their theory is, mm-hmm. and to then think about, all right, how can you, uh, how can you address their core concerns in your parts with making it sound natural, of course. Um, and, you know, having my lawyers figuring out how to frame objection battles in the context of their opening statement, um, I think that's a way that is like a very practical way to be adaptable. Yeah. Um, picking up on things that they say that the other side says on direct and referencing that on cross, another very uh, easy way to be adaptable. So those are a couple like sort of practical tips on that. Yeah. You know, one thing that I think is a bit of a shock for a lot of coaches, especially who are new to this, is they get into a tournament. They're like, all right, we've, we've got our preparation done. We're ready to go. I'm confident in my team. And then they realize that, oh, yeah, we have to like eat lunch at some point. We have to like stay hydrated somehow. I'm curious for both of you guys, because that's always something that we have to put a lot of thought into beforehand is making sure we've got, you know, snacks with high protein ready to go. We've got Gatorades on tap because it's an exhausting day. It's a taxing day. I guess how important is that to think about? And what are some of the ways you think through that ahead of a tournament? I think the first step is the first tip I'd give eat a big breakfast because you're not going to want to eat through the rest of the day. That is one thing that I always feel is that anytime after a competition, it is so hard to put food inside my body because I'm still <laughs> like in the courtroom. Some of the pressure goes away, but when you're out of the courtroom, like it's constant paranoia thinking, oh, I could have done this, I could have done this. So the pressure really is the highest after and in between competitions. So I don't usually find much food in me. Like (laughs) I usually struggle to get like two bites of a sandwich down. And then the big thing though, is I do drink a lot of water, especially during the trials. So we pack a lot of water, like I'd say 10 or so like big carry on things. We took Uh to Nashville. Make sure we all had water. I'd also like to just add for the record that we do feed our kids. <laughs> I forget. It's up to them. <laughs> yes. No, but um, I we are blessed with amazing parents yeah. and um, volunteers that, you know, they'll come pick Subway up and just have Subway ready to go so that, you know, while I'm giving them feedback, they can eat their lunch. Mm-hmm. Um like Grant mentioned, I've got parents bringing in mini water bottles, um, things like that. I definitely would recommend sort of planning it out ahead of time. Um, we even plan it out to to the dot of you know where exactly are we going to meet, yeah. things like that. Now that that's huge for our program is we've got such a great group of supportive, uh, you know, parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and all of that who 
you know, are constantly asking, hey, what can we do? What can we help out with? And that's like another sort of hidden thing, I think, especially in high school to success. It's hard to have that in college because a lot of your students are coming from all over the country. You know, the parents can't necessarily show up to competitions. But at the high school level, when you've got parents who are and want to be involved, that's a huge resource for you that you should take advantage of in a good way in the sense of if they're asking to help, you should give them that opportunity. And uh, it's a big, like you said, Marcus, it's a big blessing to your program when you're able to uh, to have that. All right. We've covered all sorts of aspects of, of succeeding at mock trial. I've had so much fun chatting with you guys. As we close out, I'm going to have you guys answer the questions that every guest on the mock trial masterclass podcast gets to answer on the way out the door. And that is this. I want to hear your greatest individual success in mock trial. This can be Marcus back when you were a competitor. This can be as a coach. And I also want to hear your biggest individual failure as a mock trial competitor or coach, because a lot of people listening to this get discouraged and think, well, I'm just, I'm not any good at this. I'll never be as good as these two guys I'm listening to who just won the national championship because clearly they wouldn't make the kind of mistakes I do. And what I love to be able to share with everyone is, no, we all make mistakes. We all do dumb things. It happens to every single one of us. So your greatest success, brag a little bit, and then tell us about your greatest failure. Well, should I go first, Grant? Do you want to go? I'll, go I'll let you go first. No, you go, you go, Grant. You go, Grant. Okay. Um, it's uh, interesting that you mention uh, nationals there, Luke, because my biggest failure was during the nationals competition. In the Elite Eight round of it, I was going up doing my cross, and they brought up a question, and I knew my statement, so I answered no. What I didn't, what I failed to remember was an exhibit that he then entered and then showed me how I was wrong. So he impeached me through an exhibit that slightly contradicted my own statement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that- I'll tell you, it was one of the most terrifying things <laughs> knowing that yeah. I was in the middle of the most important trial of my life. So being able to build off of that is really important to me. Yeah. Then my biggest success was actually in the state tournament this year in the semifinals. I was again on cross and they were again trying to impeach me. And at this point, I am racking through my mind like stone cold on the outside, but inside I am just internally panicking like okay gotta do this gotta do this am i really going to get impeached here oh my goodness we're gonna lose and as i am scanning the piece of paper in front of me this this statement that they're bringing in front of me i see a slight contradiction and two seconds before they ask the impeaching question i sit up tall and in my most confident voice i showed them that contradiction and it was the best feeling in the world watching them Triple take at the statement, and then me. They waited five seconds before they even thought of the question. And from that point on, I completely destroyed that cross. And that has to be my favorite moment that I've ever done. I love both of those. I love both of those because there's no more powerful moment as a witness than when that happens. Like when you've just got this, this... is someone you know standing in the well just completely sweating and have n- nowhere left to go uh, it, it's just the greatest thing in the world and then what's funny grant is on the other side of things uh, when we won the national title back in 2019 in round three we had a witness get brutally impeached like to the tune of you know are you saying it was green yes i'm saying it was green i'm showing you your witness statement you say right there it was blue right uh, yeah, I mean, it was really brutal, but that just shows you're going to make mistakes even at the highest level. You just got to roll with the punches and move on and keep bringing your best. So I love those examples. So failures on my side. Um, I think um, I think the thing that I would say, um, well, when I was a high schooler, I did not know the rules of evidence that well. I mm-hmm. kind of just assumed I would like be able to figure it out on the spot. Yeah. And I, I remember a specific objection battle and I just completely 
went deer headlights and I made something up that was really a bad response. Um, and I just remember distinctly feeling really bad about that. And then in that same cross, not only did I lose an objection battle, but then I got so frustrated that I started to cut off the witness. And it was like a, this really sympathetic like witness who like was dying oh, of cancer yeah. and things like that. And I just started cutting her off like immediately. And it was really bad. So don't do that, students. Don't do that. <laughs> Successes. Um, I view success and there's a lot of ways to define it. Um, I would say just from a competition standpoint, I mean, of course, winning nationals was great. Um, but just I love how consistent my teams have been. You know, we've consistently done very well at state. Um and every year the teams have, have the success at state has just gotten better and better. This year was the first year that we won, but the years prior we had done, you know, semifinals two years in a row. Um, so we had, we had gotten close. As far as the other kind of success that I'm most proud of, and I would say this is even more important to me than, than the trophies, is the relationships I have with my students. I have, this will be um, my first year of, coaching was four years ago. And so three of my students are now going to law school. Mm -hmm. um, and I think as a, as a coach, that just makes me incredibly proud to see them continue to succeed in the undergrad level. I'm still in contact with many of them. Like I said, they come back and coach. Um, and just having the connections and friendships and relationships with my former students, I would say yeah. that's a huge success and something that I cherish the most out of being a coach for mock trial. I love that. I love that. Guys, I've had a blast chatting with you guys, but more than that, I think a lot of people who are listening to this are going to get a lot of great help, a lot of great advice, and are, are going to take their game to the next level this upcoming season because of the wisdom that you all shared. So thank you so much on behalf of everyone in the mock trial masterclass family for your help today. Well, thank you again so much for everything you do for the mock trial community. It, it's really fun to see people excited about the activity. And um, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, I had a blast being here as well. And I can't wait to keep tuning into the podcast.